chapter 4. Just want to make clear that next Sunday is Christmas Eve. I think we all are, remember that or know that. Uh, we will not have our Christmas Eve service that we typically do in the evening. You know how we do that in the evening sometimes, some years? just been a strange confluence of years where Christmas Day and now Christmas Eve fall on a Sunday. And so it just doesn't seem necessary to reduplicate those things. So next Sunday morning will be our Christmas Eve service during the normal worship service time. Okay, so come as you normally do, 1030. We'll have a normal worship service, but obviously we'll do the end of our Advent candle. I'll do a Christmas-themed message. We'll sing Christmas carols as we've been doing the last few weeks. But uh, obviously it's a great time to invite people in. I know you may have families that are coming in, uh, uh, family members coming into town or friends you celebrate with. Invite them to come to church next Sunday with you. And just make it a family occasion. Don't, don't replace this time with something else, right? We want to keep Christ, as Adam exhorted us so well this morning, we want to keep Christ at the center of all that we're doing in this season. It's so easy, it's so easy to get busy, right? And to do all the things that are, that are peripheral, really, to the meaning of Christmas. So let me just encourage you to come next Sunday, bring whoever's with you, and we'll just have a wonderful time of worship next Sunday as we do each week. 1 Peter chapter 4, we're moving into a new chapter this morning. We're thinking this morning about what the world thinks of Christians. What does the world think of Christians? A Pew Research Center poll from last March indicates that non-evangelicals are more likely to have an unfavorable view of evangelicals than a favorable view. Nearly twice as likely. 32% of non-evangelicals view evangelicals negatively, while only 18% of non-evangelicals view evangelicals positively. There were 44% who didn't feel like they could answer the question just based on a a large, you know, categorization, right, stereotype. But with those who answered one way or the other, almost two to one of non-evangelicals, non-Christians, view evangelicals unfavorably or negatively. One surprising finding of the study is that respondents who reported personally knowing an evangelical were slightly more likely than those who did not personally know an evangelical to express a negative view of evangelicals. In other words, if you were a non, if we had, let's say we took a, a random non-Christian person who knew a Christian, they would be more likely to think of their Christian friend or the Christian that they knew negatively than positively. The social contact theory of sociology states that people who know others of a different group are more likely to feel warmly of them and be more tolerant, not just of them, but of their group, right? So when you know someone who is different from you, right, you have a relationship with them, you, have a, you know them more intimately than just simply somebody off the street, you are more likely to think about them favorably. You're more likely to, be, to, to have warm feelings towards them. Right? You're more likely to think more positively of the group of people that they are, uh, they are included with than not. And yet, non-evangelicals who know evangelicals are, do just the opposite. They're more likely to think and respond to them negatively than positively. Just knowing that a person is a Christian is more likely to ratchet up negative perceptions, negative feelings towards that person. And what do non-evangelicals think about evangelicals? Sociologist Ryan Burge said that many Americans are coming to the understanding that to be very religiously engaged and very politically conservative means that they are evangelical, even if they don't believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ. So non-evangelicals are more likely to identify evangelicals by their political beliefs than by their theological beliefs. More likely to think about them according to their political beliefs than by their ethical conduct. 
They're more likely to think about their about them or identify them by their political beliefs than the way that they relate to outsiders. So Jeff, your Sunday school lesson really could apply to this sermon, right? Now it's true that the world will never truly understand Christianity. And it's also true that historically, non-Christians generally perceive Christians unfavorably or negatively. Their understanding will always be clouded by their spiritual blindness, a blindness that can only be lifted by God's sovereign grace. But at the same time, there are certain things about us that should stand out, certain things that they should perceive about us that are rooted in the gospel and in our identity in Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, Peter returns to the argument that he began making back in chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, where he was calling attention to how Christians face adversity from the world. And his point there, as it will be again in this passage, is that Christians are to live Christianly. They're to live as Christians. Duh. That should be intuitive, right? We should expect that if you're a Christian, you should live as a Christian. You should live Christianly. And yet when we face suffering, there is a temptation not to do so. Peter says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, that as the church engages the world, it should reflect the holy calling that they've received from God. And that holy calling marks itself in stark distinction from the world. There should be a sense of light and darkness, right? Christian and non-Christian, light and dark. There should be a clear separation, a very clear distinction of those who are of the world and those who are in Christ. So we're going to look at our passage this morning, chapter 4, as we move along in this wonderful little book. And we're going to read verses 1 through 6 and then spend our time thinking about this passage this morning. First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the, sa- in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living, sensuality, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. For with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. When I think this morning about our public witness, the witness of the church to the world, how do we display a faithful, compelling witness to the world? And our text provides three answers for us that we're going to work through this morning. First, we follow Christ's example in our suffering. Second, we live differently than the world. And third, we trust God to vindicate us. So let's think first about that first way in which we think about a compelling, faithful, public witness. First, Peter would say, follow Christ's example in your suffering. Follow Christ's example in your suffering. Now, I want to make sure that we're clear here, so I want to make sure that we remind ourselves of the context in which Peter is saying these words. These words here flow really according to this section that we're in. It began back in chapter 3, 
verse 13. And in that section, verses 13 to 17 of chapter 3, Peter exhorted the saints to persevere through adversity. He urged them to keep doing good, to keep their eyes on the spiritual blessings, the heavenly blessings that were awaiting them. He exhorted them to fear God and not their enemies. He exhorted them to honor Christ, the Lord, as holy in their hearts. And he called them to prepare themselves to make a defense of their hope in the gospel. He concluded that section in verse 17 by explaining that suffering was God's will for them. He says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So here Peter is connecting their suffering, the suffering of the people he's writing to, to Christ's suffering, who also suffered despite doing good. All right, you see the connection? The readers here, those who are receiving this letter, are suffering because they're doing good. They're living righteously. They're following God's word. They're obeying his commands. Well, Peter connects that in chapter 3, verses 18 and 22 to Jesus. Jesus also suffered for doing good. Christ's suffering was like theirs in some degree. And because Christ's suffering was God's will, their suffering is also God's will. Now, why was Christ suffering God's will? Because in obeying God and doing his will, Jesus was fulfilling God's redemptive plan, his redemptive work. Right? Because in chapter 3, verse 18, Peter said that Jesus suffered not for his own sins, but for ours. And because he, who was the righteous one, suffered for us, who were unrighteous people, he brought us to God. That was the purpose of Christ's coming. We could definitely make a Christmas message out of verse 18. Jesus came, the righteous one, to suffer for us, to suffer for our sins, unrighteous people, in order to bring us to God. Jesus' suffering ultimately led him to his death, right? But the hope of the gospel is that God raised him from the dead and proclaimed his victory over all his enemies. So that last week in chapter 3, verses 18 and 22, that when Christ was raised from the dead, he proclaimed his victories to over, to over all his enemies, including those spiritual powers that opposed him, the very spiritual powers that were behind the sufferings of God's people. So for Jesus, suffering brought victory. And Peter connects Christ's sufferings and the victory that he received as a result of his suffering to the suffering and ultimate victory of his audience. If they identify themselves with Christ, as they have done in baptism, they too will suffer. But by identifying with Christ, Peter says they will also participate in his victory. They'll be raised from the dead, just as Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. And so Peter wants his audience to keep an eternal perspective in the midst of their adversity. Look, I know things are tough. I know things are hard right now. You can only really see just what's happening in your circle, in your sphere. But gain an eternal perspective. See the larger thing that God is doing, not just in your lives, but in the life of the world, for the whole world. Now, in chapter 4, verse 1, Peter is transitioning back to the situation of his audience. Verses three, chapter 3, 13 to 17 were about his audience. 3, 18 to 22 were about Jesus. Now, back in 4, verses 1 through 6, Peter is transitioning back to the situation of his audience, and he is connecting once again the suffering and victory of Jesus that he just went through in chapter 3, verses 18 to 22, to the suffering and victory of his readers in 4, 1 through 6. 
Notice in verse 1 the transitional words, since and therefore. So Peter's carrying forward the thought that he just made in chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. What should Christians do then in the light of Christ's bodily sufferings? Or as he says in verse 1, his sufferings in the flesh. Peter says, look at verse 1, that they should arm themselves with the same way of thinking. Okay? They're suffering. Jesus suffered and was victorious. You're suffering. So what do you do? How do you endure this? How do you identify with Jesus and his suffering? He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And that word, arm yourselves, is a military term. It means to take up arms with the intent to use them in battle. And while this particular term appears only here in the New Testament, other passages use similar words or images to compare the Christian life to a life of war. The most famous one I thought of was Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13, where Paul writes, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Tom Schreiner says that Paul's martial language in this passage in Ephesians 3, sorry, Peter's passage here in Ephesians 4.1, his martial language indicates that discipline and grit are needed to live the Christian life, particularly in, view, in the view of the, suffer, of the fact that suffering that we encounter. We encounter suffering. What is our response? It is to marshal up. It is to arm ourselves in the same way. We need to remember, as my pastor from college used to always say, the Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. The Christian life is a battleground. And we are engaged in a spiritual war from the moment of conversion until we draw our last breath or Christ returns. Such a reality requires a mindset. It requires a disposition in which we do not stroll through life with a laissez-faire attitude, but we rambo up and engage our adversity head on. Not to bring an end to our suffering, but to persevere through it. Are you going to hear a lot from Tom Schreiner this week, friends? He was great. Schreiner, once again, he says, like soldiers preparing for battle, believers should prepare themselves for suffering. So how do we arm ourselves? We arm ourselves, he says, Peter says, with the same way of thinking. And the word same there points back to Jesus and his suffering. In other words, we engage suffering from the same mindset and the same disposition and the same approach that Jesus had when he engaged his suffering. And knowing how Jesus engaged suffering is a crucial help to us that we might persevere through our own suffering. Tom Schreiner says that believers must arm themselves with the understanding or thinking that suffering is inevitable, right? We need to have the mindset that suffering is inevitable. Not that, well, this is going to go by. I'm just going to try to get myself through this problem. We should be prepared that we will struggle and that we will suffer and face adversity for the whole of our lives. It is inevitable, And so how did Jesus engage suffering? 
He engaged it with the knowledge of God's will. He engaged it with the truth of God's word. He engaged it with an unwavering commitment to God expressed in obedience and faithfulness and perseverance. He engaged suffering by entrusting himself completely to his Father. Jesus didn't seek to alter the course of the path that God had placed him on, nor did he seek a way out of his suffering. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross despising the shame. In other words, he put his life in God's hands. He obeyed his Father, and then he left the results to God. We enter and engage and persevere through suffering and adversity in the same way. We understand that suffering will be a reality for us because we have aligned ourselves with Jesus. We've believed the gospel. And in believing the gospel, we entrust ourselves completely to God no matter what, right? We talked about baptism last week. That's what baptism declares. When you are baptized, you are making a declaration that you are going to follow Jesus no matter what. You are aligning yourself with him and with God's purposes for your life. You are aligning yourself and committing yourself to trust him and to obey him no matter what. And that's why, you know, we kind of, it's, it's a struggle in America because there is such a, a Judeo-Christian ethic and mindset and worldview, right? Where we celebrate, baptism is celebrated everywhere. It should be celebrated everywhere, right? But man, there's great joy and great celebration in baptism. You know, around the world, in different places where it's difficult to be a Christian, that really marks you. That's like, a, that's like putting a bounty on you, right? That's why when people are, are, are willing to undergo baptism, they know what risk they are taking because it is life-threatening to them. And yet, those who are baptized are saying, I will cast my lot with Jesus no matter what. And Peter is expressing that kind of commitment. The kind of commitment that says, I will follow Jesus no matter what. He, he makes that, that point in the latter half of verse 1 and in verse 2. He says in verse 1, again, I'm just going to read the whole thing just for the flow. Since therefore Christ suffered in the, same, in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, that phrase at the end of verse 1 is a little tricky, right? For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. If we consider what Peter says here with the rest of the New Testament, Peter doesn't mean then that we cease from sin just because we become a Christian, that you're no longer going to sin from the moment of your conversion to the rest of your life, right? 1 John 1.8 tells us if we, have, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We know from personal experience, right? When we confessed our faith in Christ, we were baptized. Yes, we made our commitment to follow Jesus, but we also have fallen flat on our face because of various sins throughout the course of our life. So we know that what Peter says here doesn't mean that we are sinless from the moment of conversion on. But if we interpret Peter's wording from what he said in the first part of verse 1, we understand that what Peter is talking about here is our resolve to follow Jesus. The one who suffers in the flesh has prepared himself and resolved himself to follow Jesus. And the commitment to follow Jesus is a commitment to suffer unjustly. The commitment to follow Jesus is a commitment to suffer unjustly. Tom Schreiner says that that commitment, 
the commitment to follow Jesus and to suffer as Jesus himself suffered is evidence that we have broken with a life of sin. We have broken with a life of sin. He goes on to say what Peter emphasizes is that those who commit themselves to suffer, those who willingly endure scorn and mockery for their faith, show that they have triumphed over sin. They have broken with sin because they have ceased to participate in the lawless activities of unbelievers and now endure the criticisms that have come from such a decision. The commitment to suffer reveals an intention to live a new life, a life that is not yet perfect, but remarkably different from the lives of unbelievers in the Greco-Roman world. It is impossible to sin and suffer for Christ at the same time. That is a double-mindedness that just cannot happen. If you are sinning, you are not committed to Christ in that moment. I mean, you might have a commitment to Christ more broadly, right? But you are not committed to Christ in that moment. You are committed to your sin. But if you are committed to Christ and you are suffering for his name, sin will be the farthest thing from your mind. It will be the farthest thing from the desire of your heart. So what Peter is saying here, he's talking about there that resolve, that commitment, that if you are committed to Christ, you will put away the life of sin. Your resolve will cause you to live in such a way that you will face suffering for the name of Jesus. Peter expresses that commitment in verse 2 when he says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. By believing the gospel and trusting ourselves fully to Christ for the rest of the time that we have here on earth, we resolve to no longer live according to the human passions and desires that once characterized us in our unregenerate state. Before you were a Christian, you had a wicked heart, an evil heart, a sinful heart. And what we thought to do, what we wanted to do, was to give expression to those things that were in our heart, those sinful things. But now that we are committed to Christ, now that we are entrusting ourselves to Him, now that we are believing the Gospel, we resolve no longer to live that way. Our new resolve, what is our new resolve then? Our new resolve is to do God's will just as Jesus did. And if it is God's will for us to suffer, then we will suffer. But we will suffer with faith and obedience and perseverance to the glory of God. So certainly in all things, right, not just this, but in everything, we should follow Christ's example. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means to follow Christ's example, to, to live our lives and following the pattern of Jesus Christ, to imitate Him. It's easy to do that when things are going well, but it's much harder to do that when things are not. And so Peter challenges us in the midst of our adversity. We ought not to abandon the faith. We don't retreat to our former lives. We don't flounder aimlessly, not knowing how we ought to live. We don't look for a way out of our suffering or try to reverse our fortunes. We arm up, we put on the mind of Christ, we submit ourselves to God, and we follow Christ's example of faithfulness and perseverance. So how do we display a faithful, compelling, public witness to the world? By following Christ's example in our suffering. Second, Peter says that we display a faithful, compelling, public witness to the world by living differently than the world. We live differently than the world. Look at verses 3 and 4. Peter says, for the, t- for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. 
With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So in verses 1 and 2, Peter notes that his readers had resolved to follow Jesus. And that resolve to follow Jesus included following him and his example in their suffering. And Peter indicates that their belief in the gospel not only aligned them with Christ, but it gave them access to his victory. But it also brought a night and day transformation to their lives right now. They were going to suffer. They were going to have victory. But in this moment, from now until then, there was going to be a transformation that marked their lives. Before they believed the gospel, Peter says here in verse 3, they lived like the Gentiles normally lived. But now that they have believed the gospel, they no longer live like the Gentiles. They live like Christians. And so we see that separation, that distinction again between Christian and Gentile. Peter draws the distinction that Christians are to live differently. Their lives should look differently than the lives of their Gentile neighbors. Peter reminds his readers that the time for living like the Gentiles is over because they have believed the gospel. They've resolved to follow after Christ. And nothing should diminish that commitment, including and especially persecution and suffering. Let's make a few observations about verses 3 and 4 that I think will help us understand what the Gentiles thought of Christians, how they responded to Christians, and how Peter's readers may have been tempted to avoid persecution and suffering. First, let's notice how the Gentiles live. What behavior characterizes the Gentiles? Look at verse 3. Peter says, For the time that has passed for, for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. It's quite a list. That's how the Gentiles live. That's what their lives look like. Those first two terms in that list, living in sensuality and passions, may refer specifically to sexual sins, but they are probably more generally umbrella terms just for general sinfulness. There's sort of a, a categorization of really any kind of sin, right? All sinfulness really belongs under these two words. And this list and those, those two words point to the fact that all sin originates with hearts that have evil and sinful desires. We know from Scripture that the hearts of all human beings are corrupt, all human beings are sinful from the moment of conception. Jeremiah says so well, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So our hearts, we begin with that point of our hearts being evil. The Gentile hearts, our hearts before we came to faith in Christ were wicked. They were desperately sick, sinful. And what happens to hearts that are filled with sinful thoughts and imaginations and desires, eventually those things come out, right? All sinful desire eventually bears fruit. And all outward sinful behavior is born from a sinful heart. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 and 23. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. 
Now, Peter here is doing more than just pointing out the obvious, right? He's more than giving us sort of a, a general ethical sketch of Gentile behavior. He is saying here that this is what the Gentiles want to do. Do you see the first part of verse 3? For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. I want to point out that word want. It literally means, it's normally translated as will. Right? Kind of like back in chapter two, chapter 4, verse 2, where it talks about uh, the will of God. Right? For, uh, so, long, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, those two words in the Greek are different. But the ideas are the same. They are synonymous. They are oftentimes used interchangeably in Greek literature. So this is a powerful contrast that Peter is making here. The will of the Gentiles is sharply contrasted with the will of God. Where God, by his holy character and word, wills one ethic and one way of life for all people, the Gentiles reveal the height of human rebellion by willing a different ethic and a different way of life for themselves. In other words, God has a will for us as to what he wants us to do, how he wants us to live. But the Gentiles have a will of their own. They have a will that they want to do. They have a will of how they want to live. And those two wills, the will of God and the will of the Gentiles, do not agree. They are night and day. They, they are so contrasted one from the other. And Peter list, makes this list here in verse 3 of these Gentile vices in part to show how the Gentiles live. This is what their lives look like outwardly. If you were to look and to see and to observe, this is what their lives look like. Because they are unregenerate, their sinful hearts imagine all kinds of evil imaginations which they scheme to do. Again, this is characteristic of every human being. Every human being who has not trusted in Christ, who's not been changed by the gospel, has a sinful heart, and they meditate upon that sinful heart, and they think about all the sinful things they could do in their sinful heart, and at some point, they scheme ways of actually doing it. Okay? That's what the Gentile is like. That's their code of ethics. That is their will. That's how they want to live. But Peter also says here in this passage that this Gentile way of life is contrary to the Christian ethic. In other words, the point he's really making here is not just to expose how the Gentiles live. He's telling his people, you don't live this way. This behavior is antithetical to God's character. It's antithetical to God's word. It's antithetical to your identity in Christ. These kind of characteristics have no place in our lives. In fact, Peter notes the transformation that Christians undergo when they believe the gospel, right? Because they were once Gentiles. Peter's right to a largely Gentile audience in these churches that he's writing to. He says, because you were once Gentiles, you used to live this way. This would have been normal conduct for you. But now he says in verse 3, this kind of living is in the past. This kind of living is over and done with. This is how you used to live. There's no longer any kind of characteristic in your life that should look like this. You can no longer live this way. Whether you're tempted to return to that way of life or whether these sinful, evil desires continue to crop up in your heart, you ought not to go back that way, especially when you're being persecuted for your faith. Can you imagine you're, being, you're suffering, you're facing adversity, you're being persecuted, you're being mocked and scoffed at and ostracized, and you're thinking, how can I get out of this? How can I get out of this? And one way would be to say, you know what? I didn't experience this before I became a Christian. If I go back to that life, I can avoid this suffering. This would have been an oh, oh, awful temptation for them to face. 
Same in the book of Hebrews. Same for a lot of different books of the New Testament. This was a challenge. I don't want to suffer if I go back to that old way of life then maybe, maybe I can get out of this suffering. But Peter reminds us that we are to live in a new way, a way that is marked by holiness, a way that is consistent with God's revealed word, a way that is exemplified by Christ himself, how he lived. We're to live as he lived. Christians no longer, Peter says, have a, have a live for human passions, but we live for the will of God. And that is the key distinction between Gentile behavior and Christian behavior. The Gentiles do what they want to do. They do what they will, while Christians do what God wills. And so their suffering, ultimately, is the result of doing God's will. That's what Peter was saying in chapter 3, verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Notice also in verses 3 and 4 that Peter points out the Gentile response to Christian behavior. I love verse 4. Verse 4 says, with respect to this, right? With, with respect to what? With respect to the fact that you no longer live as they, as they do now. That the time has passed for all of these sinful behaviors. With respect to this, he says, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. They're surprised. The absence of typical Gentile behavior and its replacement with godly behavior is shocking and it's astounding to the Gentiles. In other words, their way of life is so normal to them that they think everyone should live like they live. In fact, they can't understand why some people wouldn't want to live like they live. They love their lifestyle so much they think everybody should live this way. Is that not a testimony of our world today? Man, this world is so great. All these simple things are so good. You're not living this way? Why not? You're crazy. They're surprised. They're shocked. They're astounded that people wouldn't want to live like them. They're surprised, Peter notes, though. doesn't stay surprised. It turns to offense. It's not just a surprise due to their lack of understanding but they believe Christians who live differently than they do are undermining the social and cultural values that order their lives. Again, so true for us. If this isn't something that just sounds like it could be said today, this is what's happening in our world today. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote that Christians have a hatred of the human race. Are there not people today saying that we hate other human beings? That is the... That is the the, the, the word of chastisement, right? The word of offense that our culture is speaking to us today. You hate people. You're misanthropes. You don't accept people as they are. You don't, you don't embrace their lifestyle. You don't accept it. Not even tolerate it, but accept it as a good and normal thing. You must be hatred. You must have a hatred of the human race. Tom Schreiner once again says, unbelievers were at first puzzled and then outraged by the failure of believers to participate in activities that were a normal part of Greco-Roman culture. Pagans would feel this way because idolatry and immorality were woven into almost every dimension of their lives, from life in the home to public festivals to religious observances and even social occasions. So Gentiles believe that Christians were not merely strange. It's one thing to think that's strange. It's another to say that they were unpatriotic. You don't support 
the cultural ethos of our society. They said they were irreligious. They said Christians were subversive. They said Christians undermined the religious system, the home, the community. They were tearing apart the very fabric of society. And so, surprise turned to offense. But it didn't stay there. Peter notes that offense turned to reviling. Peter says in verse 4 that the Gentiles malign the Christians. They ridiculed, mocked, scoffed, and ostracized Christians for not joining them in the same flood of debauchery as they. So Peter commends Christians for doing good, for living righteously, for being godly. They should not succumb to the pressure to abandon godly living for the sake of alleviating the suffering that the Gentiles were heaping upon them. So doing God's will, refusing to live essentially according to the base and sinful passions of the heart, enduring suffering for righteousness' sake, all has the advantage of proclaiming a powerful public witness. When you don't live as they do, you're going to stand out. You're going to draw attention to yourself. You're going to invite their criticism and their mocking and their ostracism. But in that, you are proclaiming a powerful public witness. Unbelievers will be surprised and offended. And they might even malign you and revile you and heap hardship upon you. But when our lives outwardly reveal the transformation that has occurred inwardly by the gospel, we are declaring the power of the gospel. We are declaring that there is a powerful thing that God has done to us to change us so that we live differently. In God's providence, he may use that testimony in conjunction with our verbal proclamation to bring out more of the lost out of the darkness and into the light. So we can and should think about ourselves in light of this passage. How is our public witness? Do our lives give evidence of the transformation of the gospel? What are we submitting to? Are we submitting to our own will rooted in evil and sinful desires? Or are we submitting to God's will that is holy and righteous? Have we completely and utterly abandoned the old way of life? Or do we regularly slink back looking to express our passions? Friends, if we have cast our lot with Jesus, if we have believed the gospel, then we must live Jesus' way. We must put to death the desires of the flesh and live by the Spirit. We must be willing to endure hardship for the sake of sharing in Jesus' victory and receiving His eternal glory. We are called to live in a new way, a way that the world does not understand, a way that the world hates, a way that the world would love to banish. We must endure all hardship in order to magnify Christ. Because as we imitate Him, we are magnifying Christ. So how do we display a faithful, compelling public witness to the world? We do so by living differently than the world. And finally, we display a faithful, compelling public witness to the world by trusting God to vindicate us. We trust God to vindicate us. So what hope or encouragement can Peter give to believers who are being maligned by their unbelieving neighbors? And how can he help them to endure this malignity in this moment? Well, as Peter so often does in this letter, he once again turns the reader's eyes toward their future hope. 
And he points them to the consummation of history and God's dealings with his people. Peter reminds his readers that those who malign them now will have to answer to God who is the righteous judge on the last day. In verse 5, Peter says, They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The unbelieving Gentiles will have to give an account of their words and of their deeds. And certainly that is true. They'll have to give an account for everything they say. They'll have to give an account for everything that they do because God is the creator and judge of all men. And so we are all accountable for how we steward the lives that God has given to us. We are responsible to steward these lives well. We're to acknowledge God's kingship over our lives and we're to obey all that he commands. We understand from Scripture, as Peter has mentioned so many times, that God is the righteous judge. All will give an account to him of their lives, and he will render righteous judgment. And since all of us fall short of God's righteous standards, we really are all condemned. We are deserving of God's just wrath because we have all failed to submit to him and to his word. God's wrath is the penalty that our sins deserve. This is the reason then why the gospel must be preached. And Peter notes this in verse 6. He says, for this, is the, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Not dead in the moment, but were once dead. Who are now dead, but have once lived. They were once alive. We're not, he's not talking about preaching to them in, in their death, right? After having died and giving them a second chance. He's saying they're dead now, but when they were alive, they had an opportunity to hear this. They had an opportunity to respond to this. This is why we preach the gospel to people who are going to die, right? That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. In other words, what Peter is saying here is the gospel is the only hope of all people. The gospel proclaims good news because it announces the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Again, chapter 3, verse 18, that because Jesus, the righteous one, died for our sins, for died for the sins of unrighteous people, he did that in order to bring us to God. And then, having died, God raised him from the dead. So that he would show that the sacrifice that Christ made was sufficient to take away our sins. So Christ's redemptive work in his death and resurrection forgives us of our sins and brings us to God so that we now live in a reconciled covenant relationship with him. If it were not for the gospel, we would all be condemned. But by God's grace, he provided good news to us so that we could live spiritually, and eternally. Peter's point in verse 5 is that those who malign persecuted believers will be judged by the righteous God who defends and vindicates his people. It might seem in their malignity, in their persecution, that they have the upper hand in the moment. It may seem that what they say is true. They may possess, they may feel to us like they possess a power that is crushing to us. But Peter encourages his readers to keep an eternal perspective. View your perspective from eternity, from the position of the truth. The righteous God will hold unbelieving Gentiles to account for their malignity, while the elect exiles who have endured suffering will take possession of their eternal rewards. That's the hope that keeps us going in the midst of severe trials. How will all of this shake out at the end? 
We must let the goal of our salvation inform, guide, and empower us to persevere through suffering. And that is why we must keep preaching the gospel to those who malign us. It's why we must always be ready to give a defense for our hope in the gospel. It's why we must always be sharing with those, even though we may have shared a thousand times that we were blue in the face, we keep sharing the word. We keep proclaiming the truth. We keep preaching the gospel Sunday after Sunday in the church because the very people who persecute us need salvation from God's wrath on the final day. The eternal torment of the final judgment will be far, far, far worse than the temporary suffering that we endure in this life. So we must keep speaking and sharing the gospel. This is why we must keep putting to death the passions of the flesh and abstaining from all evil behavior. This is why we must obey God's will and live godly lives. Because our witness, both spoken verbally and lived visibly, is the only hope that sinful people have for salvation. And we trust that God will use our public witness even to save some who persecute us. Our prayer for them must be as Jesus is on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Friends, we don't take vengeance against those who do evil to us, those who inflict suffering upon us, We trust that God will vindicate us. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. We don't have to take vengeance for ourselves or defend ourselves. God is our great defender. He will vindicate us. He will prove in the proper time that we were right by trusting in Christ and obeying his word. And we trust that he will bring to justice all of our opponents. At the same time, we understand that if it had not been for God's grace, we would be on the other side. We would still be Gentiles. We would be enemies of God. We would be persecutors of his people. But God was gracious to us to allow us to hear the gospel and to believe it so that we could have the hope of eternal blessing. Even as we trust that God will vindicate us, we should pray for our enemies as Jesus taught us. And may our public witness share the hope of the gospel so that our enemies might become our eternal friends. Brothers and sisters, we can't control what the world thinks about us. But we can control what our witness looks like to the world. We must follow Christ's example in our sufferings. We must live differently than the world. And we must trust God to vindicate us. We trust that through suffering, God will sustain us. And we cling to the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. And we pray that those who malign us now will one day cease their striving against God and come to a knowledge of the truth for their eternal good. May God grant us a faithful witness to the world for the glory of his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Peter and his letter. Thank you, Lord, that over the span of 2,000 years, this letter reads as fresh and as bold and as encouraging as it did in those days. We pray, Lord, we might have hope in the gospel. We pray, Lord, you might help us by your power, by your word, to to bear a, a public witness to the world that declares the power of the gospel. 
that brings eternal change to our opponents. Help us to stand in our suffering. Help us to follow the example of Christ. Give us the grace, Lord, and the power to live differently than the world. And Father, help us to trust you. And just be faithful to do all that you've taught us to do. We pray, Lord, that in all these things that you might be glorified. You might use your people. You might use your church, Father, to impact an evil and perverse generation so that your name might be glorified among the nations. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.